On this second Sunday of Advent, as we think about the coming of Jesus Christ, we light the candle of peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, and the fruit of His presence is peace. Christ comes to bring justice, wholeness, and harmony to every relationship throughout all creation. He wants to continually grant us peace in every situation. All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. In just a moment, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Uh, if you're here for the first time this morning, maybe you're watching online, I'm glad that you're with us as we are in the second week of our Advent series, the four weeks that lead us up to Christmas. And, and just a reminder, Advent is this two-pronged approach to thinking. One, we are celebrating the coming of Christ at Christmas. But the second piece of Advent, what I talked about last week, is that we are preparing our hearts for the coming again of King Jesus in glory. And so that's what Advent is doing, preparing our hearts for Christmas and for his eventual return where he will establish the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we're gonna continue looking at that this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, again, Isaiah chapter 40. If not, no worries. Words are gonna be on the screen and I invite you to follow along with me as I read to us now. The prophet says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God, it endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up high on, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is the word of God. Y'all, this morning, I want to talk about Publix, okay? Can we talk about Publix for a little bit this morning? Yeah, I want to talk about Publix. And one thing about Publix in particular that I want to spend a little bit of time, maybe 30, 40 minutes talking about this morning, okay? I want to talk about Publix Christmas commercials. Is anybody a fan of the Publix Christmas commercials? Y'all, I watch those Publix Christmas commercials, and can I tell you, every single year, I mean, because they put out a new Christmas commercial every year, okay? And every year, I watch those Christmas commercials, and at the end of 60 seconds, my wife will look at me, and do you know what I am doing? I am crying like a baby, okay? Like, is anybody else with me on that? Have, have you seen the new one? 
Have y'all, have y'all seen the new one for this year? Okay, if you haven't seen it yet, I want you to know you're not going to cry. You're not going to cry when you watch the new Publix Christmas commercial, but it involves a baby and a dog that can't get inside the house for the Christmas meal, and I'll let you go watch it for yourself, but I promise you, by the time I finished watching that commercial, I had this huge smile on my face. And these commercials have absolutely nothing to do with groceries. And yet at the end of 60 seconds, I find myself thinking, I'm going to go to your store and buy your overpriced arugula and under-ripened avocados because that is so good, y'all. See, they've tapped into something about the psyche of the season, haven't they? The advertisers at Publix, and I would say advertisers in more, more general terms. Here's the thing that they understand about holiday culture in America. That Christmas is a season in American culture of sentimentality. Christmas is a sentimental season in American culture, isn't it? It's part of what we do. It's why Hallmark is able to show 150 Christmas movies in the span of 16 days, and you're going to watch every single one of them, aren't you? Because they've tapped into the sentimental nature of the holiday season. They've got it all figured out. Before I came in, I was kind of giving an overview of the sermon to some of, uh, of the band and Alex who was playing guitar today. Alex said, Will, have you seen the Chevy commercial? Have y'all seen the Chevy Christmas commercial? It's like five minutes long. And I will tell you, I watched the Chevy Christmas commercial because I hadn't seen it. And I watched the Chevy Christmas commercial and it's like five minutes long on YouTube. And at the end of it, y'all, it has nothing to do with Christmas, but it's a woman who has Alzheimer's who gets in an old truck and goes to all the old places of the holidays she remembers. And it brings back fond memories and I'm watching it and I'm crying and I'm like, I gotta go preach now, (laughs) y'all. Because they've tapped into the sentimental nature of the holiday season and that's okay. That is okay, right? I I want us to understand sentimentality is a good thing. We can go to our holiday parties and we can drink the eggnog and we can sing the songs and we can do all the things of the Christmas season that involve the sentimental nature. That's good and that's true and that's right. But I want us to understand that at the core of Christmas, there is something bigger. At the core of Christmas, there is something larger than just sentimentality. And I'm actually going to extend it even beyond just Christmas. I want to make a claim about the whole of the gospel this morning. That while advertisers tap into the sentimentality and the subjectivity, right? They want us to feel a certain way during the Christmas season. What as followers of Jesus, we need to understand is that Christmas is something bigger. And here's what it is, that the gospel, the Christmas story included, it is an objective announcement. It's an objective announcement about an event that has changed the world. The gospel, listen, is an objective announcement about an event that has changed the history of the world. And it doesn't really have anything to do with the way that we feel about it. It's true regardless of what we feel, right? This is one of the problems that I have with uh, with American evangelical culture, right? The the church world that I kind of grew up on the periphery of, and some of you did as well. You would have heard a saying pretty regularly like, have you accepted Jesus into your heart Is anybody familiar with that face? Have you accepted Jesus into your heart? And that is fine and it's good up to a point because what that does is it reduces Jesus to a feeling. 
It reduces Jesus to something you experience. And the reality of the gospel is so much bigger than that. It is a news event. It is something that has happened. And as a result of this event, the world is a fundamentally different place. It is the truth of the gospel and it is at the center of the Christmas story. And if we can see that it is a newsworthy event that is worth telling, then it changes the way that we are going to approach Christmas, right? Because when we tell news, we do it with a sense of urgency, right? Uh, just think about it. Think about this, for example, right? In the next couple of weeks, the college football playoffs are going to begin, right? They're going to begin. And, and Alabama is going to steamroll everybody in the college playoff event. And when that is over, I'm going to show up in January and I'm going to make an announcement that Georgia was one of the top four teams the whole time, right? I'm not bitter about that anymore because it's true. And when something is true, we can tell it in a way that is bigger than subjectivity. It is objectively true. And at the core of the Christmas story is an objective event that has changed the course of human history. And if that is true, it deserves to be told. I read to us a little bit earlier this morning from the prophet Isaiah. And if you remember what I said last week is that Isaiah is going to be our guide throughout the Advent season. Because in the same way that we are waiting for the return of Christ, what Isaiah was doing in his context in the ancient world in Israel was he was waiting for the return of God. And what had happened in the nation of Israel during the time of Isaiah is that the Israelites, remember what I talked about last week, is that the Israelites had been exiled out of Jerusalem. That in 587 BC, the Babylonian empire came in and they flatlined Israel. They destroyed the temple, they bulldozed everything. And anyone who was significant in Israel was taken out of the nation and sent to Babylon where they lived as exiles and their hearts were broken. And, and there's this passage in the book of Lamentations, which is an Old Testament book, where the prophet, we think it was Jeremiah, the first thing he says is that there is no one to comfort. There's no one to comfort because we have been sent into a foreign land and our hearts are broken and God has abandoned us. And it is in that context that we read these words from Isaiah chapter 40 today. Because the nation of Israel was exiled in 587 BC. And what is happening is that a few years have passed since that event. And in Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet has received a word from God that while they are still in exile, something new is about to happen. Something significant is about to happen. Something objective and true is about to happen. And so he begins in Isaiah chapter 40 with comfort. Oh, comfort my people, because God is going to return, the prophet says. And the king is going to establish his reign. And you Israelites who were in exile, you're gonna be brought back into the homeland and you're gonna reestablish the walls and you're gonna rebuild the nation. And the king is about to return. And to a people whose hearts are broken, what they receive in Isaiah chapter 40 is not a subjective feeling but it is an objective statement of fact that God is about to do something huge 
And one of my favorite sections in this whole of Isaiah chapter 40 is in Isaiah chapter 40, verse five, where the prophet says that the glory of the Lord, I know y'all are heartbroken, right? And I know you're waiting for God to return, but gear up and get ready because the glory of the Lord is about to be revealed. And guess what? All people are going to see it together. The Shekinah, the Hebrew word that talks about the radiance and the glory of God, it is coming back home. And not just Israel, y'all, not just Israel, but get ready. All people, all nations, all tribes, and all tongues are about to see the glory of the Lord. And the prophet has been tasked, not with showing up and saying, how do you feel about your relationship with God? But he's been tasked with saying, that the glory of the Lord is about to be revealed to all people and comfort is yours because the king is about to return. It's an objective statement of fact as a result of which the world is a fundamentally different place. And we fast forward into the time of Jesus and there's this guy, his name's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is actually is a little bit older than Jesus. And if you read the story of the Gospels, what you'll find is that John the Baptist is actually Jesus' cousin. And one of the things that John the Baptist is doing is that the story says he is preparing the way for the Messiah. He's preparing the way for the Christ. He's preparing the way for the King who is going to return and establish his reign and his rule. And at the beginning of the gospels, what you find is this incredible story of John the Baptist, where he quotes and takes verbatim from the prophet Isaiah. And he says that I have been called to proclaim out into the wilderness, the way of the Lord. Y'all, what he is saying objectively, historically, that the king, Jesus, is coming, that the king is returning, and you better gear up and you better get ready because when he returns, he's going to establish righteousness and he's going to establish justice and he's going to set up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Essentially what John is saying, objectively, historically, verifiably true, to the nation of Israel is that the king is returning. And when he does, he is going to bring peace. He's going to bring the Hebrew word shalom. You saw the Powell family just a few minutes ago light the candle of peace. And we are in the second week of Advent where we celebrate peace. And for so many of us, when we think of the word peace, we think about absence of conflict. We, we think about the hippie movement, maybe from the 60s, right? But, but when you hear the word peace in a biblical context, when, when you hear the word peace as a follower of Jesus, it should evoke a different sort of emotion. It should evoke a different sort of consciousness and thought process, right? What is peace in the biblical tradition? And one of the greatest definitions that I have heard, it's a little bit lengthy, but it's written uh, by a man named Cornelius Plantinga Jr. If you've been around our church for a while, you've heard me quote him before, but this is by far the best definition of peace. Remember, peace is the thing John says, the king is bringing it, so gear up, baby. 
is historically, objectively coming. The peace is going to arrive. And what does that mean? And here's what it means. Cornelius Plantinga Jr. says that in the Bible, shalom, peace, it means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. And I think the best sentence in the whole thing is the last one, that peace, shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Peace is the way things ought to be. And when we read in the story of the Gospels, what we find is John, who is standing before the nation using the words of the prophet Isaiah, and he is saying, the king is returning. The king is coming and things are about to be the way God always intended. So get your affairs in order because peace is about to arrive. And if I stopped right there, that's powerful enough, but I actually want to bring a little bit of context into this story because when you understand what these words mean in the first century, when you understand what titles mean in the first century, this thing, these words of John, they take on even greater significance, right? Because for John to stand up and quote the prophet Isaiah, hey, God is returning. The king is going to arrive. Y'all, in the first century, in its proper context, that is political dynamite. To say a word like that was to ultimately risk your life because in the first century, remember, the dominant global military superpower is the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire began in Rome and it extended all the way at its apex over to England and it assumed the whole of the Mediterranean and everywhere you went in the Roman Empire. What they would have said is that there is a king they used words like there is a savior, a soter, the Greek word. There is a savior, a kyrios, and his name is Caesar. His name is Augustus or Nero or Caligula or go on down the line. And he is the one who is ultimately in charge. And Rome said that is objectively and historically true. And y'all, even greater than that, Rome introduced this concept into the world. Listen, this is so fascinating to put all these pieces together. That Rome introduced a concept into the world in the first century. It was called the Pax Romana. It was called the Peace of Rome. And what that meant in Rome was that the, the Pax Romana of Augustus, it had arrived. The peace, of flourish, the peace and flourishing of humanity had arrived because Augustus had brought it, because the true king had brought it. And the reality in Rome was that you could have peace as long as you followed the dictates and the commands of Rome. And the moment you crossed them, they killed you. So for John to stand up and to proclaim that the king was coming, objectively, historically, verifiably that the king was coming and that he was bringing peace, ultimately that introduces two competing claims, doesn't it? 
that it introduces two competing claims about allegiances. It introduces two competing claims about ultimately what is true, objectively, verifiably, beyond just what we feel, but the whole of what we know. And Rome in the first century said, we bring the Pax Romana. And if you disagree with us, we'll kill you. But Jesus says, I bring the peace of Christ. And I bring the kingdom of God where the glory is about to be seen by everyone. And the trees will cry out and the rocks will sing and the nations will rejoice because I am returning and I will establish the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And John says, y'all prepare your hearts because that day is coming. And objectively, historically, verifiably, there are two competing claims to the allegiance of those early Christians. Will you trust the way of Rome or will you trust the way of Christ? And it was a bold and revolutionary claim for John to stand up and say that the king is coming. And I want you to understand as bold as it was in the first century to make that claim for John to, to stand up and, and risk his life. I want you to understand that it was bold for him to do it. It was political dynamite for him to do it, but make no mistake about it. It is just as bold and just as provocative for us to do that as well. Do you know how countercultural it is to say that there is a true king, a true president, a true authority over our lives? Do you know how bold and provocative that is? And yet when we read the Christmas story, y'all, that is exactly what we are doing, isn't it? I want you to think about it for just a minute. I want you to remember those words from Luke chapter two. Y'all have all seen Charlie Brown Christmas, right? Haven't you seen it? And Linus comes out on the stage with a little blanket and he stands up in front of everybody and he reads from Luke chapter two. You used to watch it on CBS, but now you gotta have Apple Plus. It's the whole thing, but you can watch it. And Linus stands up and it touches our sentimentality, but I want you to know what he is doing on that stage is actually a bold and provocative word, right? Think about it. In Luke chapter 2, what does Linus say? What do the angels proclaim, y'all? But they say this, today, a savior, a soter, a king has been born. Today, a savior has been born for you. He is the Messiah the king in the line of David who's going to restore the fortunes of the nation of Israel and establish righteousness and justice. Today, a Savior has been born for you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord, the Kyrios, the one who Augustus claims to be. But even more than that, the angels sing in the next section, peace. Peace is now available upon the earth for those in whom his favor rests, y'all. And so ultimately, when we talk about Christmas, it can get up in our emotions and it can make us feel all the feels. And that's fine and it's good. But what we are doing, don't ever lose sight of the fact that we are making a bold declaration that the king has arrived. 
that as John says, the in the beginning was the Word, and, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word took on flesh, and it came among us. And if the King has arrived, and if he is the one who offers peace in the same way that in ancient Rome it gave us two choices, it does that for us today. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, and if Jesus brings what he promised to bring, well, then what we need to know is that nothing else does. What we need to know is that nothing else does. And if Jesus is the one who brings peace, ultimately, as we venture into the Christmas season where capitalism runs amok, what we need to know is that if Jesus brings peace, things won't. If Jesus brings peace, the accumulation of wealth won't. If Jesus brings peace, then accomplishment in your workplace, well, quite frankly, it won't. And if Jesus is the king, if Jesus is the Lord, if Jesus is the Savior, then, friends, no one else is. You see, Christmas is the bold and provocative announcement that the king has arrived and as a result of his arrival, the world is a fundamentally different place. It is true, objectively, historically, verifiably. And if that is the case, friends, listen, we got to know something as the First Baptist Church of Augusta, okay? Here's what we need to know, that the church, the church, it has news to share with the world. The church has news to share with the world, right? And it's not about feelings. It's not about feelings. It isn't. How many of y'all got to come to Vivid Christmas, right? How many of y'all got to come? How cool was that event? Was that not amazing? That was so stinking cool. And, and the band did awesome. And the light show was just incredible. And I had so many people come up to me afterwards and they were like, uh, Will, thank you so much for doing this. And I had to say, uh, it really wasn't me. Dan is the one that planned all this. So give Dan some love on that one, right? But it wasn't all me. And then they said, it made me feel like Christmas. It made me feel like Christmas. And I celebrate that like tonight. We do Christmas at first and there's going to be an orchestra and a choir and I got to listen to the preview and it was beautiful music and you're going to come and undoubtedly people are going to walk out the door and they're going to say to me, Will, it feels like Christmas. But please understand, as much as I'm glad it makes you feel a certain way, we don't do it because I care what you feel like. I don't. We do it because we're making an announcement. We do it because we're proclaiming to the world that joy has come and peace has come because the king has arrived. So church, we have news to tell the world through the vivid Christmas that we do and the Christmas at first and the homeless mouths we feed and the international missions we go on and the discipleship we embark upon because we are proclaiming that the world is a different place because Christ has come. And so ultimately, y'all, while I want you to feel good at Christmas, I want you to know that you have news to share. You have a story to tell. And so the last question I want to ask you is this. Who will you go and tell? Who will you go and tell that the peace of Christ can be theirs? Who will you go and tell that the word has taken on flesh and come among us? Who will you go and tell that the world is a different place because Jesus has 
come? With that question percolating on your mind, I want to invite you to join me as we pray together. Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful for the opportunity to come into this space, God, and celebrate your peace. John was bold. John was bold to use the words of Isaiah and to proclaim that God has arrived on the scene. And Lord, we who stand in the wake of Christmas, we who know that Christ has come among us, God, we have that same task to go and proclaim the story, to go and announce the news. So Lord, for each person who is here in this room today, I want you to put someone on our heart. I want you to put someone in our mind and challenge us this week to go out and tell them that because of Christ, the world is a different place, that God is with us, that he is for us. And we know that because of Christmas. It is true. It is good. So God, may we proclaim his way. Who will we go tell the story to this week? God, leave us with that question and inspire us to answer it. This is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.